The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. This episode contains a keynote presentation by Dr. Gary Klein of Shadowbox Training at a recent virtual open house event hosted by the Naturalistic Decision-Making Association. And I'm going to be talking about the naturalistic decision-making approach, uh, what it is, how it developed, what it's contributed, and some of the areas where I think it might be developing in the future. But let me start with an example. This is uh, an example I heard about recently. It's the work of uh, Peter Kamstra. He's uh, a Canadian, and he was a graduate student in Australia in uh, geology. And um, one of the things that he was uh, studying in Australia was these strange rock outcroppings that would extend uh, far out in, in, into the ocean. And he, he found out that there were people called rock fishers who would climb out to these and fish. And the advantage of, of fishing from these was that since the water was deeper, the fish were bigger. So you could fish much more effectively, catch bigger fish, and was very exciting. You didn't have to rent a boat. You didn't have to make all kinds of arrangements. If you felt like going out and doing some fishing that day, you just drove over to one of these outcroppings and started to, to fish, which is a great idea, but it's not completely safe. And in fact, there are about uh, 10 fatalities a year, people dying during uh, their, their attempt uh, to engage in rock fishing. The Australian government was concerned about these, these deaths. And so they did what governments usually do. They said, why are people dying? They're drowning. How do you stop people from drowning? You require that they wear life preservers. And you make sure that they, they, they check the weather forecast to see what, how high the waves are going to be. And that'll keep them safe. So um, Peter wasn't entirely sure that that was good advice. And he thought it might be a little bit simplistic. He decided to investigate the sport of rock fishing. And rather than, in, and he was going to interview people, not in an office, but he was going to interview them on the rock ledges while they were fishing. In fact, he bought his own fishing gear. He would turn up sometimes as early as four in the morning. So he was there when they arrived and he could talk to them while they were all fishing together to find out why were people dying. And what he discovered is that the government solutions were not particularly valuable. Uh, wearing a life preserver isn't going to help you in many of, the, many of the situations where people die, as you're going to hear shortly. And uh, the idea of checking the weather forecast didn't work either because the experienced rock fishers knew it might be high waves on one side of a, of a cove, but the other side, which was protected, it would be very safe to, uh, to fish there. So what they wanted to know was which way was the wind blowing and which way were the waves running. That's what mattered to them, not the overall wet weather forecast for that re uh, region. So what's, what was killing the rock fishers? What was killing the, uh, them, and it was, it was the, the novices who were getting killed, was they were, they were making bad decisions. For example, 
if you cast off and you don't catch anything, you're pulling your line in and it snags on the rock, what do you do? Well, the inexperienced ones would run over to the edge to try to free the, uh, the lure and free the line, which made them very vulnerable to the kind of waves you see here. The experienced rock fishers would just cut the line. It wasn't worth uh, the, the risk uh, to save the money for the lure. Another mistake that the, uh, the novices would make is if they caught a fish, what do you do? You, you run over to the edge and you're pulling it in and that makes you vulnerable because now a wave can sweep over and wash you out to sea. Um, the experienced rock fishers, when they caught a fish, knew there was still a hazard. They would ask somebody to help them. They would work together. And when they went over towards the edge, they would be watching the waves to see as the fish was flapping back and forth to see if a wave was coming that they had to worry about or that they could use. They could use the wave to help lift the fish onto the rock ledge. A very common way that new fishers were dying was if they did get swept into water, what do you do? One minute you're on this nice solid rock ledge, now you're in the water. What do you do? You swim back to the rock ledge to climb onto it, right? Wrong. That was a bad idea because the rock ledge, which had been your, your solid base of support, was now a hazard and the waves could smash you against the rocks or even sweep you underneath the rock. That's why a life preserver wouldn't help you if you're being smashed in, uh, into unconsciousness against the rock. The experienced rock fishers would swim away from the rock ledge. They had decided in advance where there was maybe a, a sandy beach area and they would swim towards that rather than back to the rock ledge. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing the cognitive dimension. We're seeing rather than uh, just concerning ourselves with, with the surface features of a risk, we're asking, with the experts, what can go wrong here? And where are the tough decisions? What decisions are the, rock, the, the new rock fishers making that's getting them killed? What makes this a tough situation? How do the new rock fishers get confused? Where do they go? What kind of mistakes do they make? And how do you recover from a mistake? If you're washed over, overboard into, into the ocean, you don't swim back. You swim to a safe place where you're not going to be uh, smashed against the rock. And how the experienced performers actually manage the risks and the trade-offs. These are the aspects of the cognitive dimension that have fascinated our field of naturalistic decision-making. And they're typically ignored as we see in the response by the Australian government to, to make suggestions that, that just ignores what's really going on here. So for naturalistic decision-making, a lot of our focus is on tacit knowledge. In many situations, people emphasize explicit knowledge, declarative information, which is factual information uh, that's easy to obtain and to describe. The routines, the checklists, the procedures, that's easy to write down. But the real expertise comes out in people's use of tacit knowledge the way that we can recognize patterns that as we gain experience, the ways we can make fine discriminations, the mental models we have that let us understand what's going on in a situation, our ability gained through experience to judge whether something is typical, which allows us to see whether something is an anomaly and we need to pay attention to it and the way we can change our mindsets. In studying these kinds of tacit knowledge, we examine real world situations. And a way of diagramming it is to identify 
the kinds of factors that we encounter when we look, when we step out of the laboratory into a real world setting where we, we study how people perform under time pressure. In the domains Brian just described, many of those domains have people making decisions under extreme time pressure. Many of them, uh, almost all of them, involve high stakes and it's impossible to build high stakes decision consequences in laboratory settings. Many of them uh, involve multiple players and organizational constraints that are difficult to set up in a laboratory, but are extremely important and central to the decision-making people engage in in real-world settings. The uh, uh, settings that we examine are dynamic. They keep changing as the situation unfolds. There's lots of uncertainty, and the goals that people pursue aren't always clear. People deal with ill-defined goals, sometimes with wicked problems. And most important of all is the fact that in the real world settings, we, we're studying people with experience and how they use their experience. And before I go on, this diagram was the illustration for the cover of the first book on naturalistic decision-making and is now uh, a theme for the, the logo of the Naturalistic Decision-Making Association uh, with the ship and with the waves. So if you're wondering where that logo came from, it came from the first book, um, uh, Decision-Making in Action. And I'll talk about that in a second. So let's look at these factors and look at what we've been able to learn by stepping out of the laboratory, because there are people who are arguing, have argued with us, the only way to do good research is to bring the phenomenon into the laboratory where you can study it carefully. And what we find is these kinds of factors are difficult and some of them are impossible to replicate in the laboratory. And if we really want to understand decision-making, we have to get out of the laboratory and watch what people are doing in real world settings. Let me give you an example from my own work with firefighters. It was a study that I did in, in, with my colleagues in 1985, and we wanted to know how could firefighters make life and death decisions under extreme time pressure when there wasn't time to follow the, the steps that were prescribed where you generate a variety of options, you, you identify the, the, the criteria for evaluating each option, you examine each option on each criteria. There's no time, a firefighter can't do those things. So are they just you know, making it up? Are they just guessing? Or how can they handle these tough situations? So we started interviewing them and we interviewed uh, people with ex high experience, with experts, uh, 26 of them. And the average amount of experience was about 23 years. I remember once being at a meeting and talking about the fact that experience was important for uh, effective decision-making. And one of the people in the audience said, I study decision-making in the laboratory and I give my subjects lots of practice. And I said, how much practice do you give them? And he said, Oh, I give them 10 hours of training. And I thought 10 hours as opposed to 23 years, that's not even close. So we wanted to see how these firefighters could make decisions. And, and what we, they told us was, we never make decisions. And I said, really? And they said, no, we, we don't make decisions. You just look at a situation and you know what to do. 
And so that were, uh, created two mysteries. How can they be so confident that, that they could understand the situation and that the first option would, would be effective? And second, how do you evaluate an option except by comparing it to others? And they were telling us they never did that kind of comparison. And so as a result of our interviews, we did cognitive interviews. We found that what they were doing was building on 20 some odd years of experience. And when they encountered a situation, there would be a pattern matching process. And they weren't comparing the patterns, but there would be almost immediately a pattern match of here's a prototype of what this situation has been like in the past. Here are the cues to watch. Here's what to expect is going to happen next. Here's the likely goals. And here's a set of actions that are likely to be successful. So that's how the firefighters could respond so quickly and only consider one option because of the experience they had allowing them to build up a repertoire of patterns to quickly size up situations. But how do you evaluate the actions? And we looked at our interview results and it was in the old days of popping a DVD into a, a DVD player. They mentally simulated each, each action. And if the action that they thought of initially would work, then they carried it out. If it almost worked, they would improve it. And if it didn't work, they would say, what else do I have in my repertoire until they found one that would get the job done? So this is an example that we call recognition prime decision making, the RPD model. And it accounts for probably 90% of the decisions people make in tough uh, situations. Uh, and, and much a much higher percentage in routine situations. So that's what we've been able to learn by stepping out of the laboratory into real world settings. Now, a bit about the history of NDM. In the early 1980s, the Army, I heard this from somebody at the Army Research Institute, the Army would have become disenchanted with it, the, the results of traditional decision research. It wasn't helping them. And so in, as a result, in the mid-1980s, Judith Orisano, working in the basic research office at the Army Research Institute, consulted with Ken Hammond, one of the leading lights of decision research, and, and her boss, uh, Milt Katz. They established a new program of research. I was involved, Marvin Cohn, David Noble, Ron Lipschitz, and others were involved in this program. And we had never met each other before. As, as we would encounter each other at program reviews, we said, we should set up a meeting. We should try to understand what we have in common. And in 1989, we had the first NDM conference, but we didn't call it the first NDM conference because we didn't expect there would be any others. We were just meeting and it was more a workshop than a conference. We had a selectively invited about 30 people to work on a book. And that book was Decision-Making in Action, Methods and, and Models that was published in 1993 with that um, diagram of the way that, that I showed you before. However, because of the, the interest in NDM, we decided to have another meeting in 1994 and open that up and make a general call for participation. And then Rona Flynn in 1996 had a meeting in Scotland and it just cascaded from there in ways that nobody ever expected or predicted. And so we've been holding these meetings ever since 1989 for over 30 years now. 
and I'll give you a preview of coming attractions in October 24 to 27. The next NDM meeting is going to be held in Orlando, Florida, and we hope that you can join us there. Uh, as long as I'm doing previews of coming attractions, I should tell you about my next book, Snapshots of the Mind, which is scheduled to be published in October of 2022 uh, by MIT Press. So that's a bit of the history of NDM. What have we contributed? We've contributed models of cognition. Many of these models are of processes that you won't find in uh, textbooks on uh, cognition. They're models, uh, including the recognition prime decision model. We have models of sense making, of how people manage uncertainty, a recognition metacognition model from Marvin Cohn, model of insight, and on and on. So we have a variety of models of how cognitive functions are performed in natural settings. And so that leads us to macrocognition. Our interest is not just decision-making. It includes sense-making. It includes insight. It includes common grounds and the importance of common ground. It includes uh, what we call flexicution, which is the fact that sometimes when you're executing a plan, you're modifying not just the plan, but your goals as well. You're working on both at the same time. Another contribution is a set of NDM tools. The last I counted when I surveyed our community, we had 42 tools primarily for collecting data. And we've expanded the types of support that we can provide, not just training, but decision support systems, system evaluation procedures, and so forth. So that's one way to look at our contributions. Another way to look at our contributions is to imagine what people would believe without NDM. We used to believe the only way to make a good decision was generate a bunch of options and pick the best one. We no longer believe that because of the work on the recognition prime decision model. We know that that's not what skilled decision makers do. We used to believe expertise depends on the learning rules and procedures, the explicit knowledge I showed you before. We no longer believe that. We now think that expertise depends heavily on tacit knowledge. We used to believe that projects have to start with a clear description of the goal, but we now realize that in many situations, people are dealing with wicked problems and ill-defined goals. They're going to have to be understanding and revising their, their knowledge of the goal as they proceed. They can't wait until they get a perfect understanding because their understanding is going to develop based on what they do. We used to believe that to make sense of situations, people would build up from data to information to knowledge. And that's sort of a waterfall model. And that's partially true, but it misses the fact that our experience allows us to build patterns that help us determine what counts as data in the first place. We used to believe that insights arrives by overcoming mental sets because this is the way insight problems are set up in the laboratories. We now know that there's a variety of pathways that lead to insights. We used to believe we could reduce uncertainty by just gathering more information. We now know that there's a variety of factors that contribute to uncertainty. Lack of information is just one of those factors. So where are we headed in the future? I think we've just entered the future with this conference. The NDM Association 
It is a shift for us. We've been holding NDM meetings for over 30 years, but we've never had an association before. We've never had any kind of formal structure. And now thanks to Brian Moon, we do. And uh, this open house is an example of how we expect to proceed into the future. Part of the future is the next generation of NDM researchers, which I believe and hope includes many of the people on in this open house, that you are part of the future for us as researchers and as practitioners. We think the future is going to include more practitioners, people who make decisions in the field. Uh, and the next NDM conference is going to focus on practitioners. And in the future, I see that our investigations will likely expand to include issues such as wicked problems and team and organizational dynamics. So I've been talking about the NDM approach, but let me try to pin it down more clearly. I think with NDM, we're looking for different things and looking in different ways. One way of describing the NDM approach is to compare it to traditional analytical approaches. We're interested in identifying the strengths of decision makers. They're interested in identifying their biases. We're trying to unpack their expertise because we want to appreciate it. Like the experienced rock fishers, they're trying to debunk expertise and show that it doesn't matter. We're interested in tacit knowledge. They're interested in explicit knowledge. We want to understand how people think. They're looking at behavior and performance, what people do, regardless of what's behind uh, the actions people take. We're concerned with the tough decisions people make. They try to represent people's work in terms of flowcharts and tasks and the sequence of tasks. We work in field settings as opposed to laboratory-based uh, uh, conditions. We're, in the field settings, we can study actual incidents rather than artificial tasks. We want to build skills rather than just worry about eliminating errors and biases. We want to make discoveries rather than testing hypotheses. Now, it's one thing to state all of these factors, but I should be able to capture it in a diagram. So I've been working on that for this conference, for this open house. So to understand the NDM approach to research, it's a combination of two factors. It's a positive orientation that we take. We're looking for strengths and expertise as opposed to the weaknesses that people might show or biases they might or might not have. And second, it's the way we do our research, the way we conduct our inquiry, a cognitive inquiry. We have qualitative methods to explore the thinking processes that people engage in. And we need both of these. If you have a positive orientation, but you don't conduct the inquiry in a way that's properly appreciative, then you're not gonna get very far. And if you conduct a cognitive inquiry without the positive orientation, without trying to look at strengths and, and, and expertise, I don't think you're gonna make valuable contributions. That's why there's a, a multiplication here. These two factors multiply each other for the NDM approach to research. But we're interested in more than just research. We're interested in research and development. So there's a third factor. 
What do we do with our findings? We try to use them to boost judgment so that we can improve decision-making. And improving decision-making means helping people develop expertise, build their pattern base so that they, they, they can um, be, be more accurate and, and be faster in the decisions that they make rather than say people are biased, how can we overcome their biases? Uh, so we have a different approach to boosting their judgment. So that's the NDM approach to research and development. But there's another layer as well. This describes what people are doing for NDM in research and in development, but we also have to think about the practitioners, the decision makers in the variety of domains that Brian described, the people who are not simply following the steps, following the checklists, uh, um, performing uh, various kinds of protocols, but instead they're making and using discoveries. And they're an important part of our community as well. And so these, I think, are the main factors, at least for me, these are the main factors of the NDM approach. And I hope the, uh, the open house that we have today will excite you and will encourage you to join our community. Thank you very much. Learn more at naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.